This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. So today, while Americans ostensibly are celebrating Thanksgiving, which ironically, if you actually take a poll of Americans and say, how many of you are sitting at your table and expressing thanks to, uh, to God, meaning talk to any, any college students, right, and say to them, are you, whatever denomination you are, whatever religion you are, how many of you are taking time at a Thanksgiving dinner to thank God the number is abysmally low. I know this because I've tried this multiple times when I've spoken to groups of college students. It's ironic that this, this, this uh, day of Thanksgiving, which was started by our founding fathers many, many, over hundreds of years ago, with an attempt to bring appreciation and recognition to all the goodness that God had given them by giving them this bountiful country, and yet today it's become so commercialized and so Black friday out and so... Let's watch football. And so it's lost all of its meaning. Ironically, we're the real people who are being Mikhaim Thanksgiving over here. Because we're going to give Toda to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. We're going to give thanks to HaKadosh Baruch Hu. So what am I thankful for this year? This year, I am thankful for science. I am thankful for science. And I'd like to uh, hopefully, at the end of this conversation, give you the tools to also be thanking HaKadosh Baruch Hu for science as well. Uh, because, well, in the outside world, there's much of a concept of, well, either you believe in science or you believe in God, or there's a constant debate between science versus religion, right? The reality is that's not the way it is, that's not the way it was meant to be, and the reality is the more you understand science, the greater your belief in God, and the more you understand the Torah, the greater you're able to understand science, and I'd like to go through that in a little, in, in our conversation today, so... If you're geeked out over science, get excited, because we're going to be very, we would be mostly focused on science today. Okay, now just a little preface. There was once a public debate between Dr. Robert Jastrow, who was an American astronomer, planetary physicist, NASA scientist, and the director of the Goddard Space Flight Institute. He, that's not the dictionary guy, different guy. Uh, they used to call him Astro Jastro. He was an astrophysicist, very famous. And he ended up having a debate at one point, an open debate with Rabbi, uh, Rabbi David Refson, who was the dean of Neve for, he still is. I mean, he's, he's a powerhouse of a man. As, if any of you know him, he's a man who's never shy to speak his mind. And his mind is Baruch Hashem, Male Ugadush, full with incredible content. So they had a, a public debate one time. In one second. So they had a public debate one time, and <clears throat> when Dr. Jastrow gets up, he began his remarks by saying, I have to be honest, I don't know much about religion, but I think it could be summed up as reciprocal ethics, treating people how you want to be treated and the like. That's how he started his, his conversation. So when Rabbi David Refson got up to give his opening remarks, he said, I have to be honest. I don't know much about astrophysics, but I think it could be summed up as twinkle, twinkle, little star. <laughs> now, they ended up becoming great friends, and fascinatingly, at the end of his life, Dr. Robert Jastrow seemed to have come from the camp of the total science atheist uh, into changing his mind about religion. I want to read to you a quote that he gave in an interview towards the end of his life on August 6, 1982, to a magazine called Christianity Today. He said the following, Astronomers now find they have painted themselves into a corner because they have proven by their own methods that the world began abruptly in an act of creation to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet, every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth. And they have found that all of this happened as a product of forces they cannot hope to discover. That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. So Robert Jastrow, this great NASA scientist, went from being a non-believer to saying, I don't know, but based on my scientific research, it seems to indicate there are supernatural divine forces that brought this world into creation. Now, if you think about this debate between science and religion as something that's a new thing, because ever since the scientific revolution or something, it, it goes way back. There is a book. The history of this conflict goes back thousands of years. 
There's a book called Creationism and Its Critics in Antiquity by David Sedley, printed by the University of California Press in 2008. And he starts to record these conversations of science versus religion going back for thousands of years. Debates between the Greeks and the Romans. He goes through Aristotle and Plato and the Atomists and the Stoics. Needless to say, this conversation has been going on forever. Galileo versus the church. And again, Galileo actually was a, was a mommin of some sorts. He believed in God. But what he, what he proposed was so preposterous that the world did not, that the whole universe didn't surround, did not, it was not a, a, a earth-centric model, a heliocentric model. It was, so, it was so preposterous to them that they, someone could believe that the earth actually goes around the sun as opposed to everything going around the, uh, the earth, that they banned him, they excommunicated him. The Enlightenment, Spinoza in the 1600s, Nietzsche in the 1800s, and all the way up to Stephen Hawking's, Richard Dawkins, Christopher Hitchens in the more modern times. So needless to say, this is a conflict that's been going on for a while. It's not like suddenly scientists got into the lab and they discovered that there's no more God. They've been saying this for thousands of years. So if you're, And by the way, it's not going to end after this conversation today. So if you were hoping for closure, I'm sorry, there, there won't be much closure here. Okay, intro number three. If God did exist, he would probably play hide-and-seek. Meaning, if the whole purpose of the world is that we should be challenged so that we can earn reward, which is what the Derech Hashem, the way of God, written by Rabbi Moshe Chaim Lutzato, one of the great, great Musarists and Kabbalists of the 1700s, he writes there that God hides himself because he wants to give us the ability to earn reward. And if everything was so obvious, if we could just look and see God everywhere, I was about to say Lashon Hara, and there's God standing there like, yeah, what you going to say? You know, like, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, okay, God, I'm sorry. No, I wasn't going to say anything. I was going to say, oh, that tie's really nice. You know, like, we wouldn't have any, we, a person's about to steal, and suddenly there's God standing there. Uh-huh, right? This is not the state of California, son. <laughs> you can't just get away with this kind of stuff. No one would steal. You couldn't have any free will. So God hides himself in order for us to be given free will so that we can earn reward, which was the whole tachlis of creation, the whole purpose of creation. So obviously, God is good at whatever he does, so he's actually pretty good at hiding himself. As a matter of fact, the word olam, which is our world, comes from the word he'elam, which means hiding. The world is a hiding space for God. God hides behind nature so that you can't see Him, so you don't feel Him in your life all the time, and therefore you're tempted to do things that are not according to His will, and therefore you can be rewarded for doing the right thing, which was God's entire purpose of creation. As a matter of fact, the word Elohim, which is God's name, is the same gematria as Hateva, the nature. Because where does God hide? In nature. But we're going to find today that although God did hide in nature, He didn't make Himself that difficult to find. You can scratch nature anywhere and God comes tumbling out. Just get a little bit beneath the surface. And that's what we're going to try to find today. And the idea that we'll see that the more you look into nature, if you look deeper than the surface level, you actually find God everywhere. Because that's where He is. And one hand you say God is hiding in nature, but on the other hand... Hateva equals Elokim. So if you want to find God, you can find Him in nature. Now, do we have to do this? Maybe I don't really care. Don't worry, that's fine. I'm good, I'm a good Jew. I do my thing. I come to, I, I eat my latkes. I shake a nice lulav. I come to the Thanksgiving morning breakfast. Oh, what do you, what do you, I don't really need to know all this stuff. No, you actually, you do need to know this stuff. How do I say that? Because the Rambam, in Sefer Hamada, in Hilchos Yisodiyat Torah, starts off, Parak Aleph, Halacha Aleph, Yisodah Yisodos Vamud HaChachmos, Leida Sheyesha Matzarishan, the foundation of all foundations, and the pillar of all wisdom, is to know, that there is a primary being, Vuhu Mamsi Kala he's the one who brings out, and creates into existence, everything that exists, Vuhu Nimtzayim Mishamayim Vaaretz Umashar Bineim, Lo Nimtzu Ela Meamitas Himatzo, and all the things 
of the heavens and the earth and everything in between only came into existence from the truth of His being. Now Hashem says we have to know. Leida, Shayesham, Matzirishan. You have to know. It's not like, well, yeah, I believe. No, you have to know that God exists with absolute certainty. <laughs> but how do you know? We just said God hides. So, Baruch Hashem, the Rambam also tells us how to find Him. Says the Rambam in Hilchos Yisodei Torah, Perek Beis, Halacha Beis. What's the path to have attained this love and fear of Hashem? When a person contemplates his wondrous and great deeds, sorry, and his wondrous and great deeds, and he will see the wisdom of God that has no end. And there's, there's no comparison. Then immediately, he's filled with love and praise to glorify Hashem's name and the yearning to connect with Him. As David says, my soul thirsts for the Lord, for the living God. So the, the Rambam says... It's not enough to just be like, well, yeah, I kind of believe it's good. I'm a parent. I mean, look, I, I'm comfortable anyway as a Jew. This is the, way I, the only thing I know. No, you've you got to know that God exists. You've got to find Him. You've got to know with as much certainty as that your finger or your fingers exist that God exists. You have to know that. That's what knowledge is. There's different kinds of, of there's belief, there's knowledge, there's different levels of understanding. Knowledge in Judaism is integrative knowledge, which is totally, you are one with it. I know that my hand exists. It's not I believe that my hand exists. I know that my hand exists. That's what you have to know about God. You have to know that God exists. And how do you find Him? Says the Rambam, look around at God's incredible works. So while the whole world wants you to believe that you need to choose between science and God, the reality is those two work hand in hand. And not just that they work hand in hand, but they help each other. It's not enough for me to find areas in which I believe both to be true, but rather we're going to try to even find areas where understanding one supports the other. Okay. <laughs> one last caveat before we start. I am not an expert on either of these matters here. I'm not an expert in Torah. I'm not an expert in science. I happen to have a passion. I enjoy science. I read science books uh, in my spare time. And I love Torah. Um, I, I try to learn it in all my spare time. Um, so I just want to, if you want to, what we call in the yeshiva world, dingzach with me, feel free to come over afterwards and dingzach away. Okay, so like I'm saying, nothing here is, is uh, inviolate. Okay. Another very important thing to understand is that often when people talk about this debate between science and religion, they're talking about two different things. And they're talking over each other, and they don't understand that we're, this conversation is non-conversation, because what you're talking about is not what I'm talking about. Let's give a simple example. How old is the world? Oh, oh no, he didn't. How old is the world? Old enough. We never ask, don't you know, it's manners, you never ask a world its age. <laughs> never. <laughs> Okay, how old is the world? Anybody want to say something? 5784. Any other opinions on this matter? Some people might believe the world is uh, a little bit older. Maybe 14. It used to be 14.5 billion. Now they're saying 13.77 billion. Uh, Science, I'm saying that's the scientific opinion of the world. It used to be 14.5 when I was growing up. Now it's about 13.77. The world, evidently, much like my grandmother, keeps getting younger as time goes by. So it used to be the 14.5 billion. Now they're saying it's about 13.77 billion years old. But I love it how everyone's like a little bit uncomfortable to even say that, because, uh-oh, I'm going to show. Like, what's going to happen? There's actually a, sh- a yeshiva that won't even allow the children to eat certain cereals because on the cover of the cereal boxes are dinosaurs. And since the world is only 5,784 years old, dinosaurs clearly never existed, therefore you're not allowed to eat cereal that comes out of a box that has dinosaurs on that. 
Now, do you know what I call people who don't allow their children to eat cereals because they have pictures of dinosaurs? Cereal killers. Okay. <laughs> okay, but what if I told you that perhaps this whole conversation is about two entirely different things? What if I told you that the Ramban himself on the Pasuk, Zachar Yemos Olam, Binushnos Dar Vadar. The Pasuk in Bamidbar that says, Remember the days of the world, understand the years of each and each generation. What about if the Ramban said that one is referring to the pre man era and one is referring to Shnos Dar Vadar is from the beginning of Adam Arishon and on? What if one is an entirely different understanding of the other? We have generations once Adam is created. And we know that Adam was created 5,784 years ago. What about the fact that there's Gemaras that say there were hundreds of worlds before Adam Arishon? 974 worlds to be exact. That could have been going on for billions of years. Nachmanides himself, the Ramban himself says that there's a... Yemosolam, there's these days of the world that are the pre-man era, and everything is totally different. And then there's Shnos Dor Vadar, there's the years of the generations of man which start with Adam Arishon. What about if Nachmanides, the Ramban, who lived from the 1194 to 1270, already was telling us that you can find God in two very different ways. You can find Him in the God of physics, and science, the creator of neutron stars and down quarks. And you can find him in the experiences that you, humanity, have had with him. And they're not at all conflicting. Let's take it a step further. When was the Big Bang discovered? So the Big Bang was actually discovered in many parts. Let's go through the, the different like, eras of this, the discovery of this creation. Because what you have to understand is that in 1959, when Scientific American, which was a very prominent science journal, went around and polled leading scientists all over America, the vast, vast majority of them said, when they asked, how long, or, how long is the world here? They said, well, the world's always been here which was an idea that was, it's called statism. The world is always in the same status as always it is. And that was around since the times of Aristotle. For 2,500 years, no one had bothered to update their understanding of science. And they just said, oh yeah, the world's always been here. Creationism? That's a weird thing for religious people. The very idea that the world was created was to them, to, to the men of science, the great men of science, the idea that the world was created was an anathema. The world has always been here say the great men of science in 1959. The world has always been here. The universe has always been here. How did it get here? What, what does always mean? Let's not ask all those questions. We haven't, don't have the answers for that just yet. So when was the beginning of the world discovered? So first of all, there was a German mathematician whose proofs indicated that the world actually had a beginning. Often when you get to cutting-edge science, you start going to math because the things are so... Massive, and they're impossible to measure because they're so much bigger than you can measure in a lab, but numbers are actually able to fit massive things in a very short space. So he was a cutting-edge mathematician. His name was Hilbert, a Jewish guy. Um, <coughs> and he sent his, math, his mathematics proofs that the world had to have had a beginning, that it just didn't, couldn't, couldn't always have been here. He sent it to a journal called Mathematisch. Annalen, the Mathematic Annals, in approximately 1908. And that was one of the most prestigious math journals. And he sent in his work. And he said, here, look, I've figured out mathematically the world had a beginning. The house expert in the Mathematician Annalen, the Mathematics Annals, was a guy named Paul Gordon. And he sent back, along with his refusal to publish this, Das is nicht mathematisch. Das ist theology. This is not mathematics. This is theology. 
Because he understood that if you could prove that the world had a beginning, then there's a creator. And that was something he was unable and unwilling to countenance. So even though the math was right, he would not pop publish it because this is not mathematics, this is theology. So we see the science world resisting. Resisting the cold hard facts that there was a creation. Interestingly, both of them were Jews. David Hilbert and Paul Gordon. Um, Hilbert was from the University of Göttingen, which was one of the most prestigious universities in the world, in Germany, and had all the cutting-edge mathematics, physicists, and everything, and they purged them all in the early 1930s. The Nazis pushed, pretty much pushed everybody out. And of course, to their great detriment, they lost all the brightest minds in science. But that is always what happens when a society engages in anti-Semitism. They literally just, they, they might as well just stab themselves in their brain. Because that's what happens. Their brilliance, their success all starts to bleed out. And let that be a lesson to all the universities today that are engaging in such gleeful anti-Semitism. So that's step number one, 1908. A Belgian priest, ironically, and theoretical physicist named Georges Lamatès brought proofs that the world was expanding outward in 1927. Now the idea is if the world is expanding outward, it's coming from somewhere, which means it had to have a start somewhere, because you can only collapse it back to something. He sent his work to Einstein, Albert Einstein. Einstein refused to engage, saying, I will not give in to all these priests. Because he was saying, if you're trying to prove that the world had a beginning, then you must be a a religious fanatic. And I'm a scientist. I'm not ready to countenance all that. So I'm not going to talk to these priests. The math may be right. The science may be right. But I I don't want to deal with these priests. I'm 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 a scientist. Look at the lack of willingness to actually engage with what the science was showing. Even on, be, on, the, on the greatest minds, scientific minds, they're incredible, like, if I don't see it, it doesn't exist. Pathetic responses. Edwin Hubble discovered a similar thing in the U.S. a few years later, but it didn't get any traction. And finally, in 1965, Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson discover the microwave trails of pretty much everything in the world. What do the microwave trails mean? If you watch a highway, you go stand over here on Southfield Road, and you go come at night, you see all the cars that are rushing towards you, they've got bright white lights, and the cars that are rushing away from you have red lights. There's some sort of thing like that in the world, too. And if you basically, if you use the right kinds of telescopes, and you get up on your roof one night, don't do that because our roofs are slanted over here. But if you, st- <laughs> if you stood on the ground with a very, very powerful microwave telescope, you could see what's coming to you and what's coming away from you. And you'd see that everything is going away from you. Everything. The whole universe is expanding out, which means that if everything's expanding out, it must have come from somewhere. If things are all just going helter-skelter, some are coming, some are going, then the world's just in chaos and everything's just moving around like a challenge. Thursday night challenge coming up. But if everything's moving away from you, everything is moving away from you, if all you see everywhere you look in the universe is taillights, that means the whole world must be expanding out. And when he finally starts publishing this stuff, the world can no longer deny it. The facts are too hard. The facts are too strong. So despite the fact that in 1959, the vast majority of scientists in the world believed there was no creation. Creation is for the Bible wackos. We are men of science. In 1965, the proof was too great. The world had a beginning, which they named the Big Bang. Now, in the beginning of their understanding of the Big Bang, the Big Bang was just this massive explosion of everything that came out. So, stuff. Like a lot of stuff just exploded out at this Big Bang. No one knows where that stuff came from. And even today, not a single scientist in the world can tell you where the energy of the Big Bang came from. But if you were to speak to a scientist after that, after, after thousands of years of scientists refusing to engage in the idea that there was a creation to the world, because they knew that that's what it said in the Bible all along, and despite the fact that people were bringing them proofs, mathematics proofs, physics proofs, and they were just, no, I don't want to listen to the priests. That's math- this is mathematics, that's theology, I'm not willing to engage. 
When they're finally willing to engage it, they say, okay, okay, I admit, I admit. There, there was a creation like your book said, but this creation was just a big bang of everything hurtling out. And your book says, on the first day of creation, by Yomer Elohim Yehiar, and God said, let there be light. So for like about 30 years, they said, yeah, there was a creation that's true. And true, we don't know it. We have no idea where all that stuff came from. But there was a moment where everything exploded out and all this stuff came out. But then we get to another problem. If you take all the stuff in the universe, when I say stuff, I mean everything from chairs and danishes to planets, stars, galaxies, (laughs) black holes. Take it all and try to put it back into where the Big Bang happened. And it doesn't quite fit. This is not like I'm sitting on my suitcase in the airport trying to shove a couple extra things in that this suitcase has too much and this suitcase has too middle. I open up this one, I start stuffing things in and it just won't close. Just sit on it and we'll close it. No, no, no. The amount of stuff in the universe is so insanely vast that it wouldn't come anywhere near by thousands of orders of magnitude close enough to fit into where the Big Bang happened according to our mathematics. So finally, they've come back to saying, okay, so what was the Big Bang? The Big Bang was an explosion, really, of energy. And what's the lightest form of energy that could explode out? Light. Light. (laughs) Exactly. So, oh man, for 30 years now, we've been forced to admit that there's a creation, but we've always said, but ours was a Big Bang of stuff coming out. Your book says, and God said on the first day of creation, let there be light. But then they came to be like, oh man, it doesn't fit. If it does not fit, you must acquit. <laughs> so uh, we had to change our scientific understanding and say, oh, it really, really just was an explosion of light. Okay. By the way, let's go back to the Ramban. On Bereshis Barokim Esashamayim Vesa'aret, in the first Pasuk in the book of. Bracious. HaKadosh Baruch Hu bara kol hanivraim me'afisa muchletes. God started everything from absolute nothingness. Ve'ein etzleinu b'lashon ha-kodesh b'otzas hayesh me'ayin el-lashon bara. The word bara is an ex- an, a description of something being created yesh me'ayin, something from nothing, ex nihalo, out of nothingness. Anything that's done in the entire world, above and below, is only done from that first initial energy. He brought forth from this absolute nothingness, this something very, very, very fine. You can't touch it. You can't grab it. But it's a powerful force that can create much more. It's ready to accept form and to become from the little much, from the potential energy into physical. This is the initial energy, the initial explosion, so to speak, the initial Big Bang, which the Greeks call Heyuli. The Achar Hayuli Lo Bar Davar, and that was all that Hashem created. The entirety of the creation was, boom, one big explosion of Ayomer Elokim Yehiar, of Ayatzar Va'asa. But afterwards, He took that incredibly thin, tiny energy that was so ephemeral that you can't even grab it. But from it, He made Bayas Elokim Esharakia. By Yavdel, look at the whole entire creation story. The only time it says Baraz, Barashas, Baralakim, Esa Hashemayim, Vesa Aretz. And then after that, it's Hashem makes this and makes that. It's like you start off with this ingredient in your kitchen. It's called Heyuli. But from it, you can make turkey and pumpkin pie and gravy and mashed potatoes. It's an energy that can, make, can be made into everything. From this one little energy, he made everything. Now, this is amazing, by the way. The Ramban, again, died in the year 1270. What he was saying was so insanely revolutionary. 
Everyone at that time, all this, there was no, whatever, whatever they, the people who call themselves scientists in 1270, I mean, we look at them right now, like, what, what did they know back then, of course, but okay. They were the scientists of the day, and some days they'll probably they'll look at us and say, what, what did they know in 2023? Um, but in any case, so the Ramban is saying that everything was created from this initial explosion on the first day of creation. That was it. Hashem was like, okay, I'm done here. After that, the rest of the days of creation were making those things into other things. Now here, I'm going to teach you something. So that's all, so far just some basics over here. If you think that science and Torah are incompatible, mm-mm. science just comes crawling slowly, slowly to the Torah. And the more you understand the Torah, the more you understand the reality of the world, and science has a long time in getting there, but Baruch Hashem, we're able to see in our days such incredible proof of the reality of, the, of HaKadosh Baruch Hu because we're watching in our days the scientists slovenly crawl back to what we've been saying all along. For thousands of years, they made fun of us for believing in a creation. They tried to deny those who, who brought them proofs of a creation, saying it's not mathematics, it's theology. I won't listen to the priests. And then they were forced to admit there was a creation. Then they tried to uh, uh, make the creation to something it was not. And we're like, we've got the receipts. The Ramban said this. And I'll show you more in a second. But we knew that on the first day of creation, it was the only day that there was anything new created. And after that, everything else came out of that. The Ramban told us that. Indeed, now science says the Big Bang was actually just a massive, when we say massive, we can't even comprehend how much massive, but a massive explosion of light energy. Now you may be wondering, my friends, how does a massive explosion of light energy end up being stenders made of wood, danishes made of who knows what, orange juice, you know, bagels, cream cheese. How does that happen? How do you start off with just light and then end up with bagels? It's a good question. And for this, my friends, I want to read to you an amazing Gemara that always baffled me. And here is where science helped me understand the Gemara. This is, those, this is the most beautiful, elegant thing there is. When? The Torah helps you understand the science, and the science helps you understand the Torah. So I just showed you how the science finally helped you understand the Torah. Right? Meaning, sorry, the, the Torah helped you understand the science. Hashem created on the first day of creation, everything. And then later the science comes to it. Now I'll show you a flip side. <clears throat> Let me read you a Gemara. And let's understand this Gemara and we'll see. It's baffling, but hopefully we're going to be able to help understand this based on science. The Gemara says like this. It's, I believe in Masechus Megillah. El Ahadatani Rav Shimi. That which Rav Shimi taught. Ain pochasin me'asar p'sukin be'sakneses. When we lane, we never lane less than ten psukim. Hani asara keneged me. Who are these ten psukim? Why, why do we have ten? Why specifically ten? Amar Rabbi Shua ben Levi. Rabbi Shua ben Levi says, keneged asara batlanim shabes knesses. There's supposed to be in every city. You're supposed to have at least ten people who are batlanim, who do nothing but learn Torah. Every city, for its own fortification and safety and security. And spiritual well-being needs to have a minimum of 10 guys who are Kola guys. And if not, your city should be doing everything in its efforts to get more Kola people. Because the Gemara says we need to have Asar Batlanim. At least 10 people who are sitting there and learning all day and holding up the city. So we honor them by learning 10 Psukim in their honor in the base Knesses. That's the first opinion. Is this my orange juice, by the way? Uh, yeah. Okay, let me just grab a quick drink. Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Yosef, Amar, Rabbi Yosef says, Corresponding to the Ten Commandments that were said to Moshe at Har Sinai. Rabbi Levi, Amar, Keneged Asar, Hilulin, Amar, David, Besefer, Tehillim. Rabbi Levi says, Keneged, corresponding to the Ten Hallows that David said in Sefer, Tehillim. Rabbi Yochanan, Amar, Keneged, Asara, Ma'amaros, Shebahen, Nivra Ha'olam. Rabbi Yochanan says, the ten psukim that we read, a minimum, Shabbos Mincha, Monday, Thursday, is keneged, is corresponding to the ten statements of creation 
that Hashem said to create the world. We're all familiar with the Mishnah and ethics of our fathers, Basara, Mamaros, Nivra Ha'olam. Asks the Gemara, Hi, Ninhu. What are these ten, crea- ten statements of creations? Vayomer de Mibereshis. If you look in the Torah, you're talking about every time it says, Vayomer Elohim Yehiar, Vayomer Elohim Yivakua Mayim, sorry, Yikavua Mayim, right? Yikavua, a little mental, a little verbal dyslexia. Okay, Yikavua Mayim, Visayra Hayabasha, Vayomer Elohim Yehimaros. And God said, let there be light. And God said, let there, be, let there be a firmament to separate between the upper waters and lower waters. And God said, let the waters retract and the dry land show. And God said, let there be luminaries in the heavens. If, if you read those ma'amaros, if you read those omer, vayomer, ma'amar, you read those, it doesn't have ten. Vayomer, demoratius, hani There's only nine. Go up, look at it. Someone said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go check it out. They opened up to Genesis 1.1 and they found that there's only nine there. Answers the Gemara. Beratius Nami Ma'amar Hu. The word Beratius itself is also a statement of creation. Dixiv, Bidvar Hashem Shamaim Nasu. With the word of Hashem, the heavens were made, Uburuch Piv called Sabam, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So, it seems to indicate that there's something there before Vayomer Elohim Yehi'ar. Before the Big Bang. Now, I never understood. What is this? What is this that was there before the Big Bang? I don't know. Do you know? Do you know what was there before the Big Bang? So I'll tell you. We discovered it. We discovered it on July 4th. 2012. There's a massive circle 20 miles below the ground. Partially in France, partially in Spain. Eh, sorry, in Switzerland. It's known as the Large Hadron Collider. And what they do is they take particles and they accelerate them so fast, this massive ring where they can just smoothly, the walls are perfectly smooth, and they accelerate them to as fast as we can get them, and then they smash them against each other to try to discover scientific stuff. We won't go into all the details, but here's something funny, by the way. For all the people in the science world who are so concerned about the climate, climate, and the, the Large Hadron Collider uses more energy than a, the city of Geneva. Just to itch some scientific itches, right? Okay, just for the record. The people who are so concerned about excess energy usage, when they want to scratch a little scientific curiosity, they could spend billions of dollars and use more energy than the entire city of Geneva. No problem. No problem. Just, but, but if we want to leave the lights on for a little bit longer, you know that you're killing people with that science, the climate change over there. Okay, I'm not, I'm not a climate change denier over here. I'm just saying it's interesting to see the scientists themselves. What they believe in, what they say they believe in, and what they show you is a little bit different. They say they're so concerned about conserving energy and CO2 emissions, but yet... They're burning more electricity in the city of Geneva to, to, to solve some scientific questions they have that are literally it's all theoretical physics. It's not actual any practical applications. So what did they discover on July 4th in 2012 that made the whole science world literally go ecstatic? They were popping champagne. I mean, if you've ever seen, if you think frat boys know how to party, you should see scientists when they make a discovery Bottles of champagne were, I mean, I'm not even joking, by the way, there, were, there was like parties and like confetti and champagne. It was like, this is, this is when the scientists go to town. So what did they discover? They discovered the Higgs boson. What is the Higgs boson? All right. Let's go through a little bit of a... Uh, how did the scientists understand that you had a massive explosion of light and somehow that light turned into tables and chairs? So there's a concept that when things collide, sometimes they bounce off each other, and sometimes they stick to each other. Okay? If they then collide into more things, they stick to each other, and they become bigger and bigger and bigger, and particles get bigger and bigger and bigger, and eventually particles become quarks, and eventually those quarks, you know, they get bigger and bigger, and they become electrons, protons, neutrons. Eventually those things keep smashing together and then you finally get an atom, which by the way, every single step of this, 
the fact that you could even theoretically have these things smash into each other and create, just forget about protons, neutrons, and electrons. The marriage of protons, neutrons, and electrons is so insanely, insanely miraculous that we could give an entire Thanksgiving, maybe next year we'll do the entire Thanksgiving class, just on the marriage of protons, neutrons, and electrons. I think I'll have a little smaller you know, crowd, but it'll be worth, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> We're not going to do that. But suffice it to say that the marriage of protons, neutrons, and electrons on its own is miraculous enough. But then that creates atoms, and atoms smash together and eventually create molecules. And molecules smash together and start creating elements. And elements start smashing together and creating carbon and salt and tables and chairs and so on and so forth. It's an incredible process of things smashing into each other and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and then eventually start clumping together creating gravity, attracting more stuff and then creating all kinds of other stuff we're not going to get into all that right now but I'm telling you, for suffice it to say the, the, the whole, the, I'm telling you, that's the greatest thing about you want, to, you want to see God just start reading science books and find out how this whole thing works because it is so insane it, it, it buggers the imagination okay so, let's repeat. In order for you to have light eventually turn into wood and danishes, you need a lot, a lot of things smashing into each other. But here's the problem. How many points are on a tennis ball? How many points? Anybody know, mathematically? What? Infinite. infinite. Very good. There's infinite points. There's infinite points on a circle, let alone a sphere. Right? There's infinite points on a sphere. Now, imagine I have a sphere of intense pulsating energy, which is the entire energy of the entire universe. And then at one moment I say, Yehi are, and all that energy starts flying out. If everything is flying out into a vacuum, then there will be no collisions. Because there's an infinite points on that ball already, and then everything's going to just move infinitely outward into an even larger space. Nothing will interact. Nothing will smash into each other. Nothing will create bigger particles. And we have no wood, no danishes, no bricks, no carbon dioxide, no oxygen, no anything. Because all the light just went out and dissipated. In order for that light to actually interact with other particles of light and start creating bigger particles, it has to be that something moved it. Let me give a, an example. Imagine I were to take out something like a hundred guns in each hand. Okay? And imagine that I'm standing on the bottom of a Olympic-sized pool. No deep and, and, no, no deep and shallow side, just a straight pool. And there's nothing in the pool. No water, no anything. And I have all the hundred guns on each side attached to a single trigger... And I go, boom, and I shoot them. What would you find? You would find at the other end of the pool, you'd find 200 holes in the wall, right? Because they would just fly right across the wall, hit the other side, and make, embed themselves in the wall. Now imagine that I were to fill that whole swimming pool with very thick, viscous jello, black jello. And I would go in on the bottom, and I would once again pull out a hundred guns on each side, and once again pull the trigger. But now, because those bullets are flying through thick, viscous jello, they're going to start interacting with the jello. They're not going to fly straight. They're going to start twisting and curving and splicing. And what you're likely to find at the end of the pool, now drain all the stuff out, instead of finding a hundred holes on this side and a hundred holes on this side, you might find only 98 holes on this side and two of them will be bigger because two bullets will have smashed into each other and became a larger bullet. So instead of finding 100 bullet holes on this side, you might find only 98. On this side, maybe even 94, 95, 96, whatever it was, they would start interacting and smashing into each other and creating bigger holes, but less of them. When Hashem created the world, before Hashem said Yehi Ar, which was going to be this creation of this thing called Heyuli, and everything was going to come out of it, there had to be something that it was, there had to be a framework of like black jello, or else Hashem would have said, Yehi, or, and all that light would have just expanded out forever and not hit each other, not interacted, not created larger particles. We'd have no danishes. So Hashem, before Hashem created the light, Hashem created this framework called the Higgs field in science, 
named after the man who discovered it, or discovered that it had to have existed, or else we would have that problem I just described. And on July 4th, 2012, the science world was finally, in this large hadron collider, able to find a Higgs boson, which is basically a clump of that jello. And then when that happened, I was like, Aha! Now I understand this statement from the Gemara. The Gemara said, before Hashem said Yehi Or, there was something there. Voracious was there even before Yehi Or. And I never, I couldn't understand what it meant. But thank you, science. You helped me understand the Gemara. I appreciate it. I thank God for science. Now I understand. Now I can put it into a framework that I can understand. This is what it's talking about. So the Gemara already told us this thousands of years ago. I didn't understand the Gemara. It was bothered me always. What does that mean? Beratius is also a creation. What was there before you hear? Aha! Comes along the scientists on July 4th, 2012, in the Large Hadron Collider, and they gave us an answer. How amazing is that? You think science and Torah disagree? Science and Torah are the best of friends. Okay. We have been conditioned to believe that there's an inherent conflict between science and religion and that one has to choose between a man of science or a man of God. We see it in the lawsuits of boards of ed suing the, you know, like these uh, scientists suing the board of ed of Kansas for trying to put in their textbook that there might have been an intelligent design. One might believe that there is an intelligent design to this creator, that, to this world, that indicates there might be a creator. But no, 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 no. Scientists are very adamant. You cannot put that in the textbooks. We hear it from the men of science who will look down at you and say snide remarks like, sure, you can believe in God if you uh, makes your life easier. I only believe in what I can see and measure in a lab. And we see it in headlines like this one from the Washington Post, August 3rd, 2015. Faith versus fact. Why religion and science are mutually incompatible. Okay. I can do one more fascinating proof. It's, it's also science-y. Should we do one more? Ten more minutes? You guys good? Anyone have to go run and base the turkey or something? Okay, we'll do one more. Is that fair? Okay, listen to this. This is unbelievable. Why are we here? Now, that's a, not a philosophical question, but a scientific one. Let me explain to you what I mean. When I say, why are we here, I mean here as in, in the Milky Way. The Milky Way is the galaxy that we call home. The Milky Way is comprised of between 100 to 400 billion stars. <laughs> You've got to love that. Somewhere between 100 and 400 billion stars. It's round to the nearest uh, 100 billion. <laughs> and roughly 100 billion planets. The Milky Way is about 150,000 light years across. A light year is the amount of time it takes light to travel a year. And just to understand, a single light year is about 5,865,696,000,000 miles long. So our galaxy, the Milky Way, is about 150,000 light years across. We happen to be a pretty good neighborhood. We're close to the center of town. We're about 27,000 light years from the center of the galaxy. So, what's the problem? We live here in the Milky Way. Why shouldn't we be here? Rent was cheap. The weather was good. Taxes were manageable. Why shouldn't we be here in the Milky Way? The problem is there's a force that wants us out of here really bad. That force's name is centrifugal. Centrifugal force is not a bad guy. It's just a scientific rule that when things are spun around a single point, everything in it will move towards the outside. And the heavier the item is, the faster... Sorry, they will move towards the outside. Now, where do you see the forces of centrifugal force at play? So you have two people who are dancing at a chasana, and they're going around like this, around in a circle, faster, 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 and faster, 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 so gishmak, and then one of them lets go. Where do those two people go? Flying into the crowd. They go flying outward. That's called centrifugal force. It's also how we enrich uranium. Of course, we don't do that. Iran is doing that. 
And we separate blood products. I don't know if you guys know this, but one of America's most important exports is blood products. Did you guys know that? Pretty wild, yeah. America's the world's leading export, uh, exporter of blood products. And in blood products, you put them in a centrifuge, and all the stuff starts separating out, okay? Okay, now the problem is the Milky Way is spinning very, very rapidly. How fast? The Milky Way, the Milky Way, this entire galaxy, which I'm sure you've seen pictures of, it's got like arms and stuff like that. The Milky Way is spinning at about 600,000 miles per hour. If you're wondering why sometimes you feel a little stressed out, you're like, if I could just slow down a little bit. <laughs> you just got to slow down, man. But I can't. We're traveling at 600,000 miles an hour. Right, so the Milky Way is spinning around at 600,000 miles an hour, whatever that means. We can't even comprehend, but it is. That being the case, you would expect that things would be flying right out of the Milky Way at a very high rate. Because the centrifugal force. I mean, you're spinning this galaxy, and you'd expect like the stars, planets, zooming out. How do we get here? How do we stay here? Imagine you put, you know, 100,000 ping pong balls on a playground um, carousel. And then you took the playground carousel, boom, and you took it for a spin. What would happen to all the ping pong balls? They go flying out all over the place, right? They go flying out like crazy. So we are the ping pong balls. We're in the galaxy known as the Milky Way. The Milky Way is spinning around 600,000 miles an hour. Why are we not flying right off the Milky Way? That's a good question. So at first, scientists said, well, there's another force, thank God, called gravity. Gravity is a rule that says that things are attracted to each other the heavier they are. Okay. So that means, for example, if you go to the moon, the moon is not so big. And it doesn't have such a strong gravitational pull. So if you jump on the moon, you can jump about 30 feet in one jump. It's got a very weak gravitational pull compared to the earth. The earth is much bigger. So when we jump up, we only get like a foot or two. Okay? Maybe three if you're a basketball player. If you were on the surface of Saturn, which I don't recommend for many reasons, but Saturn is massive, you couldn't jump at all. You would have, it would be almost impossible for you to stand up because the force of the gravitational pull. Saturn is so massive, it would just suck you in. You wouldn't be able to even stand up. Okay? So, they say, yeah, gravity is great. Right? Because if you actually had, take that same carousel, and instead of on the carousel having ping pong balls, put on the carousel 10-ton slabs. And then you turn the carousel. Are those 10-ton slabs going anywhere? No, because they weigh so much, they've got sucked down to the carousel with gravitational pull. By the way, we should be very thankful for gravitational pull, because if not for gravitational pull, the same way planets should be slipping out of the Milky Way, we should be slipping off of Earth. Earth is spinning pretty fast too, by the way. I mean, the, the Milky Way is spinning very fast, 600,000 miles an hour. The Earth, if you're at the equator, so you go on vacation to uh, somewhere in, the, in some island right on the equator, somewhere you know, in the Caribbean, whatever, it's close to the equator. At the equator, the Earth is spinning 1,000 miles an hour. 1,000 miles an hour. We're spinning with it. What? We're spinning with it. But we're not spinning as fast. We're spinning actually faster. Because we're not... We're spinning the same. We're going the same speed as the Earth. We, I, I understand, but I'm saying, how, how do we not fall off the Earth? Right? If we're spinning around on a carousel called the Earth, how are we not flying off the Earth? The answer is there's a gravitational pull that creates an atmosphere that holds everything down. So we have to be very, very thankful for the gravity, because gravity keeps us in place. Otherwise, just like the ping pong balls would fly off the carousel, we're spinning around at the, at the equator 1,000 miles an hour, at other places faster or slower, depending on where you are. But we should be flying right off this earth. The reason why we don't is because there's gravity. It keeps us in here. Thank God for gravity. Woo! Okay. The problem is, my friends, if you take all the stuff in the earth, and so our, our, our going philosophy here is the reason why things stay in the Milky Way is because there's enough gravity to keep them here. But there's not. There's not enough gravity. If you were to double all the mass of everything in the Milky Way, there still wouldn't be enough gravity. If you were to triple it, it wouldn't be enough. If you were to quadruple it, it wouldn't be enough. Five times it, not enough. Six times it, not enough. Seven times it. You would need seven times the amount of stuff in the Milky Way to give us the amount of gravity that we would need to keep us here. So how do we stay here? How does the whole Milky Way stay intact? Why doesn't it just slip off as it's spinning so fast? Boom! Lose a planet, a star, another. We should all be gone. 
So listen to this beautiful thing. Scientists have a syndrome called Gian, G-I-A-N. Gian syndrome stands for give it a name. Whenever you don't understand anything, just give it a name. And then suddenly it's like, oh no, we understand. It's called this. I'll give you an example. We believe firmly that nothing can travel faster than the speed of light. However, we also believe that in the early moments of the creation of the universe, the expansion of the universe was so many times greater than the speed of light. So how do you explain it? So scientists give it a term. They call it inflation. Very good. Oh, but now we understand it's inflation. Just give it a name. Just give it a name. That's all you got to do. Give it a name. I'll give you another example. According to their philosophies of evolution, you should have a first organism, and then slowly there should be just a tree of different organisms coming out and more and more and more over time. Instead, what we see is just a sudden explosion of organisms. It almost sounds like someone said, let there be an explosion of organisms, like on day five of creation. But they don't want to believe in that, so they call it, they just give it a name, the Precambrian Explosion. It doesn't make sense scientifically that it should be like that, but we gave it a name, so now it doesn't make, us, it doesn't make problems for us anymore. So we've got this problem. How are we in the Milky Way still here? We don't know. We need like seven times the amount of, of stuff here to keep us here, to weigh it down, to keep us here. So they, create a, they, create, they make up something. It's called dark matter. Hmm, we gave it a name, and now we understand. The universe is filled with this mysterious thing called dark matter. It defies all the rules of science. Because the rules of science that everything we've ever interacted with has four different forces. Electromagnetic radiation, weak nuclear force, and strong nuclear force, and gravity. This dark matter has none of the above, except for gravity, because that's conveniently the one that we needed to have. And then we understand, oh, there's just dark matter out there. We can't see it, we can't feel it, we can't touch it. But it must be out there, and we just call it dark matter. Now, you have to understand, look at the scientist guy. He's sitting here, he's telling you, oh, you religion boy, you want to believe in God? You can believe in God because you're so weak, because you can't just use your own mind and your own ration. I only believe what I see in a lab. Oh, really, Mr. Science Man? Let's talk a little bit about dark matter. You believe the only reason why we're here is because of dark matter, but yet you can't put it in a lab and you've never seen anything that has its properties and you believe it exists. How do I believe it exists? How do we, how do we understand? So here's another thing where the Torah and science come hand in hand so beautifully. There's a Gemara based on the book of Eov. Eov is an incredible safer about a man who was a very righteous man, wealthy, successful, everything was going for him. And then Hashem slowly starts stripping away everything from him. His children are killed, his wealth dissipates. Finally, he's afflicted with terrible illnesses and pains. And finally, finally, he starts asking, like, why did this happen to me? And then God eventually answers him. And if you want to read the full answer, you can go into the book of Eov. But in chapter, in Parak Lamaches, in chapter 38 of Eov, Hashem goes, does a long list of things. He says, I do these things, you don't, so don't ask any questions. Including setting the foundations of the universe, telling the waves up to where they should go and not further, setting up the torrential downpours, feeding every animal, making sure they all give birth at the proper time. And then Hashem says something very interesting in Pasuk Lamed Aleph. Do you tie the shackles of Kima? And we know what Kima is. Kima is a constellation of stars. And Hashem says to Eov, Are you shackling these, this constellation of stars? And I was always thinking, hold on, what does that mean? What does that mean? Do you tie the shackles of Kima? Do you tie the shackles of these stars? I was always puzzled by this Gemara. And then I started learning about dark matter. And I said, Aha! Eureka! What a beautiful Eureka moment. The whole way every constellation, every star, every planet is in its proper place is because there's this massive force holding them all in place. Tying the shackles of all stars, constellations, and planetary bodies. Hashem is saying to Eov, can you hold it all in? Because based on the science, this Milky Way traveling at 600,000 miles an hour, everything should have slipped out a long, a long time ago. But I'm holding it all in place. Can you do that? So here's another example. I learned this Gemara. I didn't really understand. What does it mean? Do you tie the shackles of Kima? 
But then you learn a little bit of science and suddenly you're like, aha, this is what it means. Scientists can't explain it. They have no understanding. There's this thing called dark matter. It's holding a whole universe in, in place. They can't test it in a lab. They've never... So for any time a scientist tells you, I only believe what I see in a lab, call his bluff. He's lying to you. He really is. Because he believes in dark matter. He has to, because otherwise we wouldn't be here. But yet he can't put that in a lab. And it defies every law of science that he knows. He's lying to you when he says, I only believe in what I can put in a lab. So the reality is that sometimes the, the Torah can use a little help from people, for me, a person like me, who does not understand the Sisrei Torah, the secrets of Torah. Sometimes I, I learn a science book and it hel- helps me understand the Torah that I learned. And the science community, wow. What a gift it would be for them if they could start believing a little bit. And the statements that we have in our religious books, which are there thousands of years before them, but were clearly so much being the Torah, the idea of a creation, all these things, the or everything we've learned today is all the most incredible proofs that Akash Baruch who created the world. If only they could be like the Rambam tells them, to look at the scientific world and see God and see the beauty and see the Yichud Hashem, see the absolute oneness, the absolute omnipotence of God from the world of science, we would indeed have a better world. But until they do that, they're going to have to find their struggles. I, at least for myself, I'm really thankful that Hashem gave us science to help us understand our Torah, which is the purpose of all life. Thank you so much, and have a wonderful day. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.